Hello, and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm uh, Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And I'm David, the Skeptic. All right, and we have uh, a great special show for you guys today. Uh, we brought on a, a special guest uh, to our show. Uh, special guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Tony Costa. I'm a professor of apologetics at Toronto Baptist Seminary. And I also uh, teach um, world religions and uh, uh, worldviews at Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, Canada. And I'm also an adjunct professor with the Providence Theological Institute in Franklin, Tennessee. And I also do some seasonal teaching with the University of Toronto, usually in the areas of biblical studies, uh, Bible and archaeology, and biblical history. And I'm also an ordained minister, a Christian minister of the gospel, and I am the teaching pastor at Oakwood Wesleyan Church in Toronto, Ontario. Woohoo! And yep, yeah, and as Tony knows, Tony, I actually go to Oakwood Wesleyan uh, once a month to, to listen to Tony uh, preach and teach um, his class. He he was the one kind enough to to baptize me, so I'm glad to have you on the show finally. Thank you, thank you, and it was a great honor to do that, um, uh, Dale. Oh, thank you. Perfect. Um, so so this week's topic is going to be focusing so, on. The so one- you're the one responsible for this. I am the one <laughs> guilty as charged. I can see how it's going to be. Okay, Um, so so yeah, we're going to be talking about the the ontological argument for God's existence, and this topic is something that's important to me. I actually think this is the best argument that that proves the existence of God, at least objectively. Um, So so yeah, Um, just before we get into that topic, Tony, did you mind maybe uh, we always ask our Christian guests to give sort of a bit of a, a faith journey of how you you know, your background and how you came to faith. Did you mind just giving a sure. bit? Sure. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I was raised uh, a Roman Catholic. My parents migrated to Canada in 1966 from Portugal. And uh, I was born in Toronto in 1967. And I also have two brothers. And um, raised in a very religious home. And uh, growing up uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, I was always quite religious. I attended Mass regularly. Um, I remember my grandfather telling me that one of his greatest uh, hopes was that I would myself become a a Roman Catholic priest. Um, And in my teen years, I was challenged by two of my cousins who came and told me that that they had met Jesus Christ and they were born again. And I thought, what is this born again business? And they started telling me that um, uh, that uh, if I read the Bible, that uh, um, uh, God would change my heart and that I would know uh, why I was here and what was the purpose of life and so forth. Um, and this led me actually to try to defend my Roman Catholic faith. I thought that they had apostatized from the Roman Catholic Church, and my uh, pursuit was to go and prove them wrong. And so... I took up the challenge and, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll get a Bible and uh, I will read it for myself. And, and um, my whole objective was to bring them back into the fold of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so at 15 years of age, I started, or actually 13, 14, really, 14, I would say, mm. I started reading the Bible uh, literally from Genesis to Revelation uh, using an old King James Version at the time. And uh, rather than disproving them, Bible actually proved what they were saying to me that 
I was a sinner. Uh, I was lost. I, I was disconnected from my creator in whose image I was made. And I um, came to the point in my life where I had to come to terms with the reality that uh, if Jesus Christ was not who he said he was, then he was the greatest uh, buffoon who ever lived, uh, the greatest liar, the greatest hoax who ever lived. And and what really did it for me was the, the, the question of the resurrection. And I know you've done a lot of work in that area as well, Dale, especially with your studies on the Shroud of Turin. And I know your correspondence with Dr. Gary Habermas from, from Liberty University. Um, that was an area. That was an area that would make it or break it for me. And I thought, you know, if the resurrection is a, is a, is a hoax, then, then even the Bible admits that if Christ has not been raised, then, then the Christian faith is vain and that we're all fools for following it and believing it. Um, and, and so at a young age of 15, I, I committed my life to Christ, and uh, he became to me much more than just some historical figure I read about it at Mass on Sundays and more than just a stained glass window figure. Um, he became, uh, he, he, I became uh, a follower of Christ, and he became very real to me. And, um, and so I'm now 50, uh, 52, and so uh, it's been a, a very interesting journey. I, at a young age, also was challenged with a lot of questions as well about the veracity of the Bible, or is the Bible really the Word of God as Jews and Christians have maintained? And so what that did was it, it actually led me into a pursuit of knowledge and, and research. And from there on in, I, I, I proceeded to go into the University uh, of Toronto. I did my Bachelor's of Arts there uh, in, in Biblical Studies, uh, Philosophy, uh, and then I proceeded to do my Master of Arts at the University of Toronto as well in, in the areas of, of Biblical Studies and the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and then from there, I, I did my doctorate in, uh, in, in uh, Holland and uh, at Radboud University and did my PhD in uh, New Testament and, uh, and theology. Um, and so I'm both of an academic. I'm both academic in the sense that I love research. I love studying. I love um, I love the the hard questions that are that uh, that we have to engage in our in our whether it's the Christian faith or whether it's the worldview of theism versus atheism. And um, but I'm also I'm also a uh, a pastor, and so I enjoy both uh, both vocations. I love the rigorous research, but I also love uh, being a pastor, I love caring for people. Uh, I, I love people uh, because they are image bearers of the Creator, and because they're image bearers of God, I I afford them the the respect and the dignity that they deserve. And um, and so I I also love preaching the Bible. I love uh, building up the, the the Christian church and so forth. So it's been it's been a wonderful journey, and um, and God has been faithful. Excellent. And uh, and David, any I know that you usually have one follow-up for people's faith journeys. Did you have any follow-up questions before we begin the topic? Uh, well, how did you get from there to the ontological argument? <laughs> um, well, it, it, it was part and parcel of my, my studies uh, at the University of Toronto where we studied philosophy. And so uh, we did come across Anselm of Canterbury, St. Anselm of Canterbury uh, and his ontological argument. Um, I, as I will be discussing, I, I think it is an argument. I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the one and only argument uh, that um, that Christian apologists have at their disposal. I think that it is a complementary argument 
to uh, other arguments that have also been uh, proposed, um, like the Kalam cosmological argument, the moral argument, the teleological argument, and, and a number of others. So I think it's uh, it's one feather in the hat. It's, I don't think it's the only argument. Um, is it a perfect argument, the way St. Anselm proposed it? I don't think it is. Uh, I mean, it has its its weaknesses, but but then again, we can discuss why that is in the context in which Anselm proposed it. Um, so this ontological argument is almost a thousand years old since the time it was is first written. So it obviously has some staying power. Gotcha. Yeah. And what, with that, why don't we get straight into it? Why, why don't you, Tony, sort of present the positive case or the affirmative stance as to what the ontological argument is? And Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, to understand the, the ontological argument, uh, incidentally, uh, it was not the originator of this argument, St. Anselm of Canterbury, that gave it that title. Uh, oddly enough, it was actually Immanuel Kant, um, the Danish philosopher uh, in the 18th century, who gave it that argument when he critiqued it. Um, and so uh, and so we. Well, I want to give uh, uh, due recognition to, to Kant for that. Um, so to understand the ontological argument, uh, we need to understand uh, this figure, St. Anselm of Canterbury, uh, who was a Benedictine monk. His dates are 1033 to 1109. And um, St. Anselm of Canterbury, in one of his, he's written many notable um, uh, books in Christian history. Another one is known as Curdeus Omo, which means why did God become man, and has a lot to do with the, the whole concept of atonement in Christian theology. But the one we're interested in today is uh, his work, Proslogion. Proslogion, chapters two to three. And um, in Proslogion, uh, Anselm is actually uh, praying. It's a, it's a prayer and a meditation at the same time. And um, in his Proslogion, he, he addresses the question of God's existence. And what he does is he quotes the famous verse in the Bible, Psalm 14, verse 1, where it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And he proceeds from there to argue that even the uh, fool there, who denies the existence of God, uh, has to admit that the idea of God, or at least the concept of God, is in their mind in order for them to deny such an idea. And so what he proceeds to do is, Anselm begins to argue that God is the greatest conceivable being, the greatest conceivable being that can be conceived. And so what he does is he argues from there that um, since the atheist uh, is willing to concede that the idea of God, the very concept of God, can exist in the mind of the doubter, that is to say that God, the idea of God, is false, he will argue then that from there, he will say, well, look, you, you granted the idea, which you deny, but uh, if we're going to talk about God as the greatest conceivable being, then when, what Anselm does is he proceeds from there to arguing that something that is great, the greatest conceivable being, if it exists only in an idea or a mind, it is not the greatest conceivable being, because according to Anselm, the greatest conceivable being would be a being that exists both in the mind and in reality. That is to say, 
a being that exists in reality is greater than a being that just exists in the mind as an idea. And, and what he does is he proceeds from there to argue that by definition, the greatest conceivable being would have to exist in reality as well, uh, thereby um, uh, arguing that uh, God necessarily exists. Now, it's important to realize that Anselm does not go into uh, great detail about what a necessary being is, and he doesn't go into uh, necessity and contingency arguments and so forth. Again, I, I think we need to we need to uh, cut him some slack here and understand that he's using this in a prayer form. He's a, he's speaking with God and he's he's using this type of rhetoric. Um, and so I think it's important for us to realize that Anselm is is basing his argumentation on on conceivability. That is to say, the concept of God. God is a conceived being uh, that is the greatest conceivable being. Uh, that's that's where Anselm is heading. So, if I can somewhat summarize what Anselm is is saying here, is if I can put it together here, he he puts it this way: um, Our understanding of God is a being than which no greater can be conceived. The idea of God exists in the mind. A being which exists exists both in the mind and in reality is greater than a being that exists only in the mind. If God only exists in the mind, then we can conceive of a greater being, that which exists in reality. We cannot be imagining something that is greater than God. Therefore, God exists. This is the a summary, basically, of what Anselm uh, is getting at. Now, there have been many challenges to Anselm's ontological argument, his own contemporary, uh, Gondolo uh, challenged him, and now it's important to, to note here that Gondolo was a believer in God. He was a theist. He was not an atheist. Um, what he found, uh, what he found uh, objectionable about Anselm was he found his argumentation weak. Uh, and this is an important point here, that even if Anselm's ontological argument is false, that still doesn't mean God doesn't exist. We, we need to uh, offer uh, other arguments um, to show why God doesn't exist. So, so God doesn't uh, necessarily not exist if this argument fails. And, and can, the converse is true, that may, maybe God does, does not exist, uh, even if Anselm's argument is true. So we, we, need to, we need to use argumentation to convince, uh, to prove our point. So um, Gondolo was, was one who objected, and, and he's the famous, his, his counter-argument was that he can conceive of the greatest conceivable island, and therefore, since he can conceive of such a great island, then necessarily that great island must exist. And others have tried to argue that using other examples like unicorns and so forth. Um, there have been other developments of this argument. Um, uh, René Descartes, the French, just, uh, the French uh, um, rationalist philosopher, also tried to give his version of the ontological argument. Baruch Spinoza, uh, the Jewish philosopher of the 17th century, also gave his own version. Um, uh, Immanuel Kant uh, uh, sought to argue against Anselm's argument as well. He critiqued it. He, he believed that uh, that existence was not a predicate. And and what Kant did was basically say that he, he felt that Anselm did not prove his point. 
uh, because he, he said you're arguing that that existence is, is a predicate uh, and therefore um, the argument fails. Um, now, again, let us note that Immanuel Kant, even though he objected to Anselm's ontological argument, um, Kant remained a, a theist uh, all his life. He believed in God. Uh, he, he didn't believe that logic could prove God's existence one way or the other. But nevertheless, he, he was a theist himself, like uh, Gondolo. Um, so when it comes to the, the ontological argument, as, as um, Anselm puts it out, remember that he believed that, that um, he argued on the basis of conceivability. Some arguments that have built on Anselm's argument, I think, are also um, persuasive. I, I find particularly Alvin Plantinga's uh, version of the ontological argument persuasive. Um, of course, Alvin Plantinga in the in late 1970s uh, came forward um, with his version of the ontological argument, and I'd like to just uh, read it out here. What, what Plantinga does is he defines God as a maximally great being. That, that's his definition for God. And he says the following. This is uh, his modal argument for, for the, uh, for, for the uh, existence of a maximally great being. He says um, the premise starts with it is possible that a maximally great being exists. Number two, if it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. Number three, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. Number four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. Number five, if a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. Number six, the conclusion, therefore, a maximally great being exists. And so notice that in Plantinga's version, of the ontological argument, he doesn't argue Anselm's conceivability argument. He argues the uh, he argues uh, uh, from uh, possibility. In other words, he speaks of God as a possible being, maximally great being. It's possible that he exists, and he uses modal logic to show that um, if this maximally great being exists in some possible world. Uh, and he argues from there that a maximally great being would have to necessarily exist in all possible worlds. But then he argues from there that it would have to exist in the actual world. And therefore, uh, if God exists in the actual world, then uh, a maximally great being, that is God, exists. And the way I've uh, used this argument, of course, is I think it's important for us to understand that this is an a priori argument. Uh, this is not an argument from experience, but this is this is an argument uh, before experience. That is to say, uh, it begins by defining what God is. Uh, maximally great being, Plantinga, and some argues that God is the greatest conceivable being, other than which no greater being can be conceived. And so it, it's more of a deductive argument rather than an inductive argument. Mm -hmm. And what this argument also show, seeks to show is that not only is God a, the greatest conceivable being, <coughs> excuse me, but if we speak of a maximally great being, then we have to define what we mean by that. So uh, as a Christian apologist, uh, I take a maximally great being or the greatest conceivable being uh, to be a being that is uh, omnibenevolent, morally perfect, a God that is omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnipresent, um, 
I'm also taking this, um, <coughs> excuse me guys, I'm just uh, struggling with a bit of a cold. Um, I also take this being to be um, the triune God of Scripture. And I believe that without this triune God of Scripture, I think that, uh, I think this God is the basis of uh, communication. He's the basis, basis of logic. Uh, he's the basis of uh, moral meaning and purpose uh, in the universe. And so uh, I want to make it very clear that as a Christian apologist, this maximally great being uh, would be the trained God of Scripture. Thank you. Excellent. And Tony, just before, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Dave, but just to, to clarify it, are you saying, Tony, that you think the, the ontological could be used to prove a triune maximal great being as opposed to? Yes. Okay. All right. I believe that it can. Pr uh, I believe that it could show that a maximally great being uh, would have to be a triune god, not a unitarian god. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, so so yeah. Th at this point, I'll turn it over to David to give uh, sort of a skeptical case. So, if David, if you don't mind, maybe summarizing quickly, sort of some of the main points you want to address, and then you can take some time to give your for each objection to the argument and. And you and uh, Tony can have a back and forth on each objection. Well, I don't really have a prepared speech. So what I want to do first is just back up a little bit. Tony, you mentioned um, Plantinga's argument. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I only have a limited number of big, dusty books that I've read. Didn't Plantinga walk back his own um, uh, ideas about the ontological argument? No. Not to my knowledge. From my knowledge, he still uses it today. Okay. Okay. So, and go ahead, Dale. I I thought that Plantiga was um, no longer. Um... That is that is correct. Yeah. So, so Plantiga has changed his, changed his mind on his own argument recently. Um, I think it, I think it was about a year ago. He was on Unbelievable, but. Um, yeah, his his reason for that is not persuasive. But yeah, David, uh, we're here talking with with Tony Costa. I disagree with Ellen Plantinga. I I think his argument is still good, whether he does or not. So I, I, I think that's the, important to put out there, though, uh, that since it, it seems like we have landed on Plantinga's version of the ontological argument, Plantinga himself, I I listened to the show, um, kind of rejects his own ontological argument. Uh, here and so I was just I was just wondering how that fit into your um, presentation of it. But if you are not familiar with Plantinga's kind of walking back of that, then we we can just proceed. But I I would just put it to the audience: Plantinga is not quite as big on his ontological argument as you are. Right. I'd have to follow up on that. So this was just a year ago that he's changed his view. Yeah, he he now said it was on an unbelievable show, and and okay. from what I. The, the reason for it is just because it, it, he doesn't think it provides you with absolute certainty, um, right. like a hundred percent. So that's sort of his reason. Um, right. But yeah, but yeah, David, what in terms of the argument itself, what what would be a skeptical an, an objection to the argument that you'd like to discuss? Yeah. So, um, well, once again, just some clarifications. Uh, from Anselm's greatest possible being, or I'm sorry, greatest conceivable being to um, Plantinga's maximally great being. Is there a difference between those two things? Can you uh, maybe 
talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah, it's it's not that there's it's not that there's a difference. Uh, the only difference is that um, is that Anselm argues on the basis of the concept of God, the conceivability of God, whereas uh, Alvin's uh, Alvin Plantinga's argument is moving towards uh, the question of uh, possibility that it's possible that a maximally great being exists. And of course, uh, Plantinga is using the maximally great being as a synonym for for God. Um, and so uh, the argument that Plantinga, as is uh, in his premise, he says, it is possible that a maximally great being exists. So the basic difference would be that um, would be that that uh, Anselm argues that God is the greatest conceivable being. Whereas Plantinga uses modal logic and brings in the argument of possible contingencies and, and necessity uh, and so forth. Okay, so uh, f first I would say on uh, whether we're talking about the greatest conceivable being or the maximally great being, uh, we are trying to define some essential nature of God. And we're, we're mm. using those terms as synonymous with God. So as to say, God is the greatest conceivable being, or God is a maximally great being. Right. And part of, part of my first objection here would be that we don't know any such thing. I mean, if, if what we have is the Bible, you can describe God, and you can say, well, God is God. But um, it seems like you're going beyond even the Bible by saying things like the greatest possible thing you can imagine uh, mm. or, or the maximally greatest thing you can imagine. I mean, I can, I can talk about a great king, for instance, uh, one who has conquered all of the lands and vanquished all of his enemies. And I can talk about him in all kinds of glowing terms without saying, ah, but he's the greatest conceivable king. Right. I, I could conceive of a king maybe greater, but it doesn't matter. There may have even been greater kings, but he vanquished them anyway. So right. I don't I don't actually care whether this is the greatest conceivable king. He is my king and he's a great king and he's a conqueror. That's all that right. matters. And I think that's all the Bible actually says uh you know right. you're talking about God. So right. my first objection is that these things go further in defining God than what the Bible does. Well, I think uh, I think that the biblical worldview actually proves proves your proves your point uh, in the sense that yeah, we can talk about great kings, and the Bible's filled with stories of great kings who've come and gone, Nebuchadnezzar and and uh, Solomon and others. But the Bible. Uh, projects beyond these kings and says, look, um, the greatest king, the greatest conceivable king is the one who is described in Scripture. One of God's titles is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, which means he is the greatest conceivable king. He is the ideal king from which all these other kings are simply inferior um, uh, copies, if you will. And so the biblical worldview, the biblical worldview from the book of Genesis all, all the way to Revelation, presents God as the archetypal king, the archetypal Lord of whom there is no greater king. Uh, and so, so the point that you're making, um, the biblical writers would say, yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, David. But you know what? God is the greatest conceivable king. 
God is the greatest conceivable Lord. Uh, and so the very fact that we can conceive of some being that is maximally great um, is where the ontological argument gets its start. The very concept of a maximally great being is something that you and I can conceive of. And so if we ask the question, well, what would a maximally great being look like? Well, a maximally great being would have to be all-powerful, all-knowing. Uh, he, he can't be all-evil. He can't be Darth Vader because Darth Vader is an evil entity uh, until he, he repents later at the in the series. But but this being would have to be basically the superlative. He would have the the, the superlative of all moral attributes. Um, and so and so, if you notice what what Plantinga um, uh, does, of course, is he he avoids using the word God there in his argument because. Uh, of course, uh, he's a Christian, he's a Christian philosopher, but I think what he's trying to do there is show that the very concept of a maximally great being can be conceived, uh, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. It's not necessarily a Christian argument. Uh, okay, but I, I don't I don't actually uh, see it n n the Bible necessitating um, the various characteristics that you apply to God. So I know that you're, you're saying, well, he must be the, the greatest of all possible rulers, the greatest of all possible kings, the, you know, whatever you can imagine, he's greater than that. Um, and what you have done in turn is you have created a list of attributes and said, okay, these are, these are great attributes. And so God must have them. And again, I would I would say that you're kind of defining God in his attributes as opposed to just letting the Bible talk about God. Right. Um, I don't I don't think God, for instance, has to be all powerful. But because you find powerful a great making attribute, now you say, well, he has to be all powerful. The Bible doesn't really define God as all powerful. Okay. Can I can I just interject there? The sure. Yeah, well, the fact is, it does, actually. The Bible refers to God as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. And throughout Scripture, it points out that there is nothing too hard for the Lord, that um, that God is not constrained. The only thing that constrains God, according to the Bible, is God's own moral perfection. Uh, there are certain things God cannot do. He can't lie. God cannot sin. God cannot uh, do that which is contrary to his perfect nature. And so the Bible does make uh, uh, references over and over again to God's omnipotence, that God is indeed all-powerful. So it, it's not that we're taking these philosophical argument, arguments and imposing them on the Bible. The Bible is very clear. I'm teaching a series on the attributes of God, and I know Dale's been taking those, those, uh, that course, and we've gone through a uh, um, series of uh, scriptural passages where it clearly defines God as morally good, as holy, uh, pure, um, as omnibenevolent, that he is good, and, and that he is also all-powerful. So, so and yet there are places— The Bible is, teaches that. There are, places, mm -hmm. there are places in Scripture that appear to show God having limited power. And so— In, in one, which way? In a number of ways. There yeah, are. If, uh, yeah, David, get, uh, I think you're about to do that. But yeah, you gave about two to three examples in, in our discussion. Maybe, why don't you put those sort of counter examples and see how Tony 
as a biblical scholar comes back. Sure. Uh, so one example might be uh, one we find in the Tower of Babel story, mm-hmm. uh, a one of my favorites. Um, God seems to need reports from scouts uh, telling him what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he reacts to those reports. Um, a, a God who is all-knowing doesn't need scouts uh, to tell him what's going on. Another example would be uh, in the council. I can't remember exactly where this is. Dale, you might remember more than me. Um, but where God is trying to figure out what to do with this um, disobedient king. And so he holds court and a lying spirit comes forth and says, I know what I'll, what we can do. Um, you know, and so God says, good, we'll send the lying spirit. The lying spirit does his thing. Well, again, this doesn't seem like a God that is all powerful and all knowing, uh, because he's got a council, uh, giving him suggestions. So those are just a couple of images of God mm-hmm. not looking particularly all powerful. And and right. Tony, when you answer those, uh, just to sort of expand, so like with the lying spirit, there's also a dimension. Dave, David's brought up that that makes God immoral. He's using a lying spirit. Um, and then a, a final one with omnipotence is the iron chariots uh, that I was hoping David would mention there about. You know, God loses a war because the the enemies use iron chariots. So, you know, some skeptics look at that and will say, well, that that shows God, you know, iron chariots is God's kryptonite. Um, Yeah, if if you just want to come back on on those sort of things. Yeah, if you give me the passage on that, the final reference there on the iron chariot, um, I would need to refer to that. Um, So let me just let me just respond to uh, Genesis 11. because David mentioned that God needed scouts. Um, I'm not sure where he's getting the idea of scouts there or people informing God. Um, I don't see that in the text. The, the text says that they built a tower. They wanted to become, they were one language, one people. They wanted to um, They wanted to make a, a tower whose height would reach heaven and so forth. And uh, it says that the Lord uh, came down to see what they were doing. And, uh, and the Lord said, let us go down and confound their language. And then he, he scatters them uh, throughout the, 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 the earth, the land. Um, so I, I don't see where the reference there is to, to God's informants uh, or scouts there. Um, it, it clearly refers to the judgment scene at, at, uh, at Babel. Uh, and, and there the Bible marks that as the beginning of the, um, the, beginning of, of the plurality of various human languages. Now, in 1 Kings 22, uh, I think that's the story of the of king, I think it may be 2 Kings uh, 22, the, the story of Micaiah the prophet who's been imprisoned. And uh, this is concerning, um, uh, I believe, King, uh, king uh, uh, Ahaz. Um, and it is referring to, uh, he, he is called forth from the, the prison, and he's in prison because he keeps giving, he keeps giving this uh, bad report uh, to the king that um, if he goes out into battle, then he will uh, he'll be destroyed uh, in battle. And uh, yes, First Kings 22. Um, and in, in fact, the, the king there is Ahab, not Ahaz. My, my, you correct that, that's Ahab. Um, so what is going on in 1 Kings 22? Well, I think we need to 
to have some uh, awareness of the way the biblical writers um, would 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 write. And, and in this particular case, where you have this this prophet of Yahweh who tells the king uh, that he saw in a vision uh, God was sitting on his throne and he was um, surrounded by the heavenly council and so forth. Uh, and then and then the Lord says, who will go out and be a lying spirit in, in the mouth of the prophets uh, of Ahab? And, and so uh, these uh, these uh, heavenly beings begin to have this discussion. One says this, one says that, and then one offers to go and be uh, a lying spirit. Now, I think we need to understand here in the context of 1 uh, Kings 22 that what is going on here is a parody and and. And the biblical writers, uh, the prophets in particular, were were professional um, professional uh, writers in, in in Hebrew prose and poetry and and even parody. This is a common theme among the prophets. And so, what it shows here is that uh, God Yahweh, seated on His throne, um, is is basically uh, parroting King Ahab, and and basically saying. Uh, you fool, um, I, I'm going to destroy you, and I'm going to do so by uh, sovereignly uh, having uh, your false prophets tell you that you're going to uh, be victorious in battle and so forth, but I will bring you to ruin. And so what we find here in 1 Kings 22 is not that God is ignorant or that God needs advice from his angels or that he is immoral. What we find here is that we have an, a, a renegade king, an apostate king, who had, as the king, his his duty as a Israelite king was to uh, rule by God's law and standards, to rule the people righteously, and to rule them with the law of God. Because he had reneged on that, he had violated the covenant, the pact that he had made uh, with the Lord, and there are consequences to breaking a covenant that you have made, uh, especially with the divine figure. And so what, what I see in 1 Kings 22 is actually a parody where, where God is mocking this king. And he is saying, you, can, you think your prophets are telling you the truth? In fact, I'm sending a lying spirit into their mouths. In other words, this king was already doomed. He was already condemned um, for his rebellion against, uh, against the Lord. And in fact, Ahab was ruined. He was destroyed in battle, just as God said he would be. So I think we need to understand here that we, we need to allow for the fact that the biblical writers sometimes will employ satire. Um, they will employ uh, cases where, um, where God um, is said to mock his enemies. Uh, and, and, and of course, this was a common theme in, 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 in battle. Mm -hmm. So I don't see here a... I don't see here a, a refutation of God's of God's attributes okay, here. But you, of God you being wouldn't, all good. You you wouldn't. It sounds like you would have a reading uh, where it's always going to be uh, parody. In the first example, yeah, not so, always. Okay, well, not always. Well, it's going to be something though. So you know, God, you know, maybe he didn't send scouts. He he goes down to see what's going on, as if for for somehow somehow he couldn't. He couldn't tell what was going on, or he didn't already know what was well, going on. But, right. But but no no no. I understand you have a you know a way of talking about that. Uh, by the way, Judges one nineteen is the the, yeah, the uh, reference that you ask for. Uh, the Lord was uh, with the men of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but uh, they were unable to drive uh, the people from the plains because they had chariots 
filled with iron. Um, I, it's just a little joke, I'm sure. I mean, what, however you would read it, I'm just saying there are places in Scripture where it looks like his power is limited. Now, having been a Christian uh, myself and uh, one for a long time, what I would probably have said to these examples uh, is that uh, God can uh, make it look like anything. Uh, so, you know, he he may look like he needed to uh, go somewhere and physically uh, see a thing, but he didn't need to. He may have used a servant to do this, but he doesn't need the servant. He can, he mm-hmm. can do things himself. And uh, I, I do find it odd that God uh, is a person with uh, a phalanx of angels um, to do his bidding when mm-hmm. he doesn't need any bidding done. He just right. he doesn't need it done. Right. And so the very right. fact that he has these things, these angels, right. these soldiers, these armies, makes him look like he may be not okay. all powerful. He may, be okay. all, he may be able to manipulate a lot of powers, but okay. if he were all powerful, he wouldn't need any of that. Okay. Well, let me just add to that, that again, um, again, saying that God has his angels and, and, and God has his armies and so forth, I, I think I think in this particular case, David, you, you're probably reading way too much into this, and let me explain why. Um, God is sovereign, and 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 the scriptures are very clear that God is sovereign. But God also, in His sovereignty, chooses means to accomplish His purposes. Uh, God did not need the angels because He's sovereign, but He chooses to use them for His glory, just like with human beings. Uh, the biblical worldview demonstrates that God, the triune God of Scripture, did not need to make us. He didn't need us. He didn't need angels. But he did create angels. He did create uh, humans. And he created them for a purpose. And he uses humans to achieve his purposes. And so, for example, uh, as a Christian, um, I feel that God has called me for a purpose, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Now, could God not have just chosen people and and just converted them into Christians, ipso facto? Well, of course he could. But the sovereign God of Scripture also uses means. And so I think we need to allow uh, the the Bible. I mean, there's a, there's a principle that we use in biblical interpretation, uh, is is that it's not just uh, as Protestants, I'm a Protestant evangelical Christian, we don't just hold to the sola scriptura principle, that scripture alone, but there's something called tota scriptura, that is, it's all of scripture. We look at all of scripture uh, to, to determine uh, the overall picture uh, of who God is. And, and there's also the, the case of anthropomorphisms. Um, and these are not excuses. These are clearly seen in scripture where uh, the biblical writers sometimes will employ human language to describe what God does. So when God finishes his work of creation, it says that he rested on the seventh day. But then other scriptures say God doesn't grow weary or, or get tired or, or, or slumber or sleep. And and so the, the idea of God condescending, the condescension of God, uh, is something that we see throughout scripture. We see the greatest example of that in the Incarnation where in Jesus Christ, God takes on human flesh and, and lives a perfect life uh, for us. And then uh, he dies. Uh, he's, he's treated uh, tremendously uh, in an unjust way. Uh, and then he dies for sinners and, and rises again. And so, so the Christian story is about a God who, yes, he is sovereign. But at the same time, this God enters into our time-space continuum and becomes like us 
Uh, and so I, I think it's important that we need to understand that the biblical worldview is, is a meta-narrative. It's a, it's a whole worldview. It's, a, it's not just these little pictures we see in Genesis and in Judges, but it's a, it is a meta-narrative that runs through all of Scripture. So can God uh, be described as uh, all-powerful? And then there are moments when God almost seems to feign ignorance. Uh, for example, when, when Abraham is about to offer up Isaac, and then you know the angel of the Lord says, now I know that you fear God and nothing shall be hidden from you. There are moments uh, in Scripture where you see God condescending to our level and speaking our language um, so that we can identify uh, with him uh, as his image bearer. So uh, I don't see a tension here, David. I don't see a contradiction here at all. Okay, well, I, I do. So if God is going to define him, d describe himself, allow him to be described as a God with less than all powerful, a God with less than all knowledge, oh, it doesn't, you know, God God creates man, uh, he repents that he's made man, he washes him away with a flood, maybe, maybe he could have just started with Noah. Um, in, instead of going through the other drama, who knows? If it, if he's going to make a story, a meta narrative that looks like he doesn't know everything, then I think that we can be forgiven for thinking this is a god that doesn't seem to know everything. Okay. Yeah. So Tony, yeah. I'll let you have the as the guest. I'll let you have the last word on that. But uh, just as a, one last issue that I, I'd be interested in getting your take on after you after you answer David's take there is. Um, you mentioned this argument can prove the Trinity. Um, so, yeah, after you address David's sure. uh, last point, did you want to maybe elaborate? Sure. Like, how does this argument get you that? Right. Okay, I will do. Yeah. Um, let me let me just say that uh, again. We we must we must let all of Scripture speak, and that of course I speak as a Christian uh, apologist who takes the Bible as God's word. Uh, there's an interesting text in in the New Testament in Hebrews six. Uh, verse 13 there, uh, when it's, where it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. There's a very interesting statement there in Hebrews 6, 13, where uh, here we, it speaks of God's covenant with Abraham. And, and it says there, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by his own self, by his own name. Um, and here I think we see the biblical uh, witness here that God, if you will, this is almost pre-Anselm, uh, where we have this reference to God as, since there's no one greater by whom to swear, God swears by himself. Uh, and so here in this passage of Scripture, God is clearly presented as, as this greater being. Uh, verse 16 goes on to say, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. But since God is the greatest conceivable being, there's nothing greater that God could have sworn by, and so he, he swore by his own self. Um, verse 18 of Hebrews 6, so that by one changeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, uh, and so forth. So the scripture says very clearly that it, it understands that God is not only the greatest conceivable thing, but it also understands him as someone who is impossible to do to do that which is immoral like, okay like well he's also through. the most jealous conceivable being because his name yes. is jealous and so yes. he's yes. you know he he doesn't find anyone greater to swear by but honestly what do you expect from a guy who who can who calls himself jealous like he's yeah. gonna give credit to the zeus guy over there uh <laughs> so yeah really yeah let me let me just qualify that uh david you're 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 I think you're falling into the the, the uh, there's a, a fallacy of equivocation going on here. The word jealous 
the word jealous, of course, uh, can have both a positive and a negative connotation. Uh, to be jealous of, of something that someone has, let's say I'm jealous that, that Dale has this awesome podcast that I wish I could have. Well, that would be considered, uh, that is, the Bible would call that uh, sinful because that is envious. It's, it's a covetous type of jealousy. To be jealous of something you do not have and want it is considered sinful. It's a covetous type of desire. However, there is also a, there's also a positive uh, aspect to jealousy, which is healthy. And so um, a married man, for example, has every right to be jealous of his wife uh, and be protective of her honor and be protective of her as his mate and so forth. And so when the Bible speaks of God as jealous, it is a word in Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word kana. It's a, it's a word that comes from the root word that means a bird's nest. The way, uh, the way a mother hen is protective over her nest and her young and defends it from predators, that's the language that is being used of God. He is a God who is, in relation to his people, he is protective, he is jealous for his people, he protects them from their predators, uh, and so, and so uh, the New Testament speaks of this godly jealousy that we should have. So I think we need to understand here that the word jealous uh, can have both a positive connotation and negative connotation. When it's used of God, it's clearly used in relation to his love for his people, that he is protective of them and, and wants their loyalty. Gotcha. Okay. And, and Tony, did you also... Yeah. Uh, get into so sort of getting into the the argument proper um, itself there. So, did you did you also mention about um, the Trinity and, and how the argument yes. that is a you know a great making property or yes uh, yes. Um, so the reason why I believe that the Triune God of the Bible is the greatest conceivable being uh, and and that that a Trinitarian God. Is is much more uh, much much greater or maximally greater than uh, a Unitarian God is is based on the uh, on the idea that a a triune God is by definition what we mean by a triune God is that in the in the um, being of the one God there are three persons the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and so because God is triune God has Within the persons of the Trinity, God has loved himself for all eternity. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 8 and 16, God is love. And so a God who's triune is perfect in his love. He's also the basis of communication because this God is a communicating God. Uh, the Gospel of John opens up within the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. This Word became flesh. In the person of Christ, and so, so the very concept of communication is rooted and anchored in the Triune God, and therefore, um, communication uh, is is de derived from this God of Scripture, and also because God is Triune, God is an eternal community within Himself. The very concept of community is rooted in this God. Now, the reason why a Unitarian God, let's take Allah, for example, the God of Islam. Uh, Muslims believe Allah is one, but what they mean by one is he's an absolute unity. He is only one person. Um, a God who is a Unitarian deity would not be the greatest or the maximally great being, the greatest conceivable being, because a Unitarian God by nature would have to create something to relate to. 
a Unitarian God would have to create angels or men in order to have fellowship, in order to be worshipped. In order to be God, they would need something to acknowledge uh, him to be God. That is in a Unitarian uh, context. And therefore, a Unitarian God is a God that has needs, that has wants. A God that has needs or wants, um, since a, 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 a maximally great being would be a being that is perfect, uh, that maximally great being would have no wants or, or defects or would have any, um, any uh, desires or necessity to be fulfilled. I'm, um, I'm sorry, I, other... just, I just need to cut in. Why, sure. why three? Well, the the simple answer is that uh, is that Scripture has revealed God that way that God is three persons, and so okay. But um, you're just you're just reading back in the Scripture now. You're saying that philosophically, a maximally great being has to be triune, and I'm saying why not dual or quad? Right? Why, why three? And if you're just saying, well, the Bible says God is three, then you don't really need the the ontological argument. Well, well, even if even if we would argue, hypothetically speaking, that God was a binity, that God was binitarian, that God was just two persons. The same argument would would uh, would apply because a, a a a being that is that has divine diversity within its unity, I would argue, is greater than a unitarian being that depends on his creation to be what it is, to be God, to be acknowledged as God. So, so we could question that, which I'm not going to for the sake of time, but I, I right. believe that your argument was that the, the ontological argument pointed to a triune God specifically. Are you backing away from that? I'm, no, I'm not backing away from that. I, I'm speaking again as a Christian, a Christian apologist and theologian. And, and so as a Christian, I, I'm, I'm obviously going to define that maximally great being as the biblical God. Gotcha. Now, David, I wanted to turn it to you because one of the objections, so with the logical soundness, and it sort of relates to this question of the Trinity, and, and it's the question of, okay, well, what is a great-making property? Are we, you know, how do we artificially define that it, it's, you know, so, okay, so Tony has, for example, God has to be a, a complex unity because he has to enact love or communication and that's a great making property so therefore so i'm not i'm not sure that the ontological argument has anything to do with tony's god and i, I mean this you know i don't mean to be flip about this but i don't think tony needs the ontological argument um tony is simply saying you know my god whatever he is is the greatest possible being and that's not exactly the ontological argument so if god was a you know one-eyed man who had a limp that would be, Tony would uh, say that's the greatest possible uh, attribute. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure we're even talking about the ontological argument when we're talking when Tony is describing as God. God, God triuneness is the greatest possible thing because God is triune, not because there's something great about it in particular. So once again, yeah. I, I don't I don't know why you need the ontological God let, to say, but the God of the Bible is the greatest God. Yeah, let me add to that. No, I, I think you may be misunderstanding me. Um, I mean, God cannot be a one-eyed limp, uh, for example, because uh, that that would not be, that would not fit the definition of a maximum great But it being. only doesn't fit the definition because that's not what God is described to be. Well, when we define God, as the greatest conceivable being, or as a maximally great being, uh, a being that has defects would not be considered maximally great. Okay, but when I ask you why three mm -hmm. instead of two, you said because that's what God is. You didn't defend well, threeness 
You okay. just said because that's what God but, is. Well, it's not just threeness. It's 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 Trinitarian theology is is three in one. It's both three and one, three in person. Right. One but in what I'm saying is you didn't you didn't defend that. You simply defended a some multiple something more than one. And when I said, yeah. but why three? You said because God. So we yeah. we left the yes. ontological argument completely well, for you to get no, there. Well, no, I wouldn't say we have. I wouldn't say we have because uh, Anselm was Trinitarian, and as and so was Plantinga, as and so was many of the other but, uh, supporters. But, but I'm not of, interested of the in whether he was Trinitarian. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in whether the argument gets you there. And the well, argument I think it does. doesn't. Okay, well then you haven't I, shown I think, that yet. But I think I've shown that because if if a if, if a Unitarian God. Uh, if a Unitarian God is 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 a maximally great being, and so if the Islamic God who was one person, uh, who in eternity uh, there was there was nothing but this God, there was no angels, there was no humans, there was no subject-object relation, there was nothing to communicate with, nothing to talk to, which would mean he would be virtually a mute. What I'm saying is that that a maximally great being would be a being that has no no uh, wants and would lack nothing. He would be completely fulfilled within himself. And what I'm saying is that a Unitarian God needs um, a, 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 a needs an object or a subject-object relationship in order for it to be God. In other words, it would have needs. A I, maximum I, great I, I take being, your point. I don't agree with it, but I'm not arguing with that point. What I am asking for, and I, I think it's... Uh, you know, maybe maybe the audience is hearing it, but if I'm not, let me ask it again. What I'm asking is why three instead of two? If I were to take your argument at face value, you still have not defined why a triune being is the optimal being as opposed to a dual or a quad. Right. Well, the reason, again, why, I, why I've argued for the Trinitarian being, obviously, is because I'm Trinitarian. Right. I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm 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 even willing to grant you the argument that even if it's two, uh, a being who is has is two persons. Let's say it was just the father and the son, that would still be the greatest conceivable being. My point was to show that a unitarian God, which denies any plurality within God, could not be the maximally great being. Okay. So, so what just, do you say? You're just arguing two? plurality over singular. You're not arguing Absolutely. trinitarianism. That's a different oh, no, I argument. Am. Okay, but oh, you're no, not no, you're no, not no. arguing it from the ontological argument, so I don't I don't but, mind you arguing trinitarianism. I'd like you to know where you're getting it from. From the ontological argument, you're just saying it has to be more than one. Well, it it all it, again it all depends. I mean, when when um, when Anselm argued that God was the greatest conceivable being, I mean, there's no doubt Anselm was trinitarian. He understood that God was the truth. It doesn't matter. I, I don't. You get your. We get your point. You made a, a valid point. Let let Tony come back. But then I want to generalize it to because I know you have an objection based on what is a great making property. So so sure. Tony meant. Yeah, I want to get to that objection. Make sure we fit. So right. so Tony, I'll, so, I'll, so just no, just understand. I was trying to meet Tony at at least partially by not not denying a singular God could be great. I I might argue that in a minute. But Tony's argument from your question, Dale, and I just wanted to make sure that he answered that uh, to both our satisfactions, is why a trinity? And so I I wasn't getting that, and I, I guess we'll leave it there, uh, and we'll we'll see if the commenters heard something that I didn't. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think people have have gotten where it's coming from on that on that point there. So. 
Yeah, I wanted to sort of what it, so Tony gives a definition of what a maximal great being is, and he, he listed certain properties. So, yeah, I, I wanted to turn it over to you as the skeptic. Did, did you have objections to the notion of what a great possible being is outside of the Trinitarian? Sure, thing? kind of a question. How the heck do you know what a maximally great being is? How do you know what a, what a maximally great property is? You're a broken sinner just like me. So mm -hmm. uh, you might, for instance, presume uh, that lots of power is a great property. But then again, we have sage uh, sayings that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So how do you know that that is a great making property? I know that, <clears throat> good question. Um, I know that power is a great making property because uh, unlike tyrants, which are, and you're right, absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely, uh, tyrants uh, just show just show ruthless power. There is no, there is no uh, equality. There is no morality. There is no justice. There is no mercy. And so the biblical God, yes, He's all powerful. He's revealed Himself as El Shaddai. That's a title, and He's also called the Almighty throughout uh, the New Testament. But this God is also a just God. In other words, He's not a tyrant. He's not a moral monster, as as others would would call Him, like Richard Dawkins and others. Um, and so. And so when we speak of God, we're, we're not just talking about one particular attribute. In fact, the central attribute of God, um, at least in the Christian tradition in the Bible, is God's holiness, his otherness, his holy apartness. Um, and so power is only one of his attributes. But even when we speak of God's power, I think we need to be careful that we're not saying that God can do the logically impossible. I don't know any Christian theologian who believes that God can do the logically impossible. He can't create married bachelors and square circles and so forth. Um, God's power is is balanced, of course, by by his his perfect nature, by his by his justice, but also by his mercy and by his love. But I don't I don't think you've actually engaged with a question though, and I know it, it seems like a, like a, one of those obvious duh, what do you mean? Why do you think power is good? But you've just said power is good. And yes. it's better with God because it's tempered with mercy. But I am trying to get at, at something more core. Okay. Why do you think power is good? What makes well, you I, think that? Well, I think I think power is good because when it's in the right hands, it can be used for good. We've seen that in, in, in human history as well. We've seen examples where, where when power is in the wrong hands, it could lead to Things like the 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 communist regimes of, of Stalin and, and Mao and, and Lenin. And okay, so it's good because it seems good to you. No, 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 it's good. Because... Well, is there is there an objective uh, sense that it's good? Because it sounds like it's good because it seems good to you, especially when it's used to thing to purposes that you consider good. How do you well, get there? I think I think I think power can be used for. Uh, either evil or for good purposes. We, we see that, for example, in our laws. Our laws are ideally, the power and authority of the law is supposed to be used to maintain order in society, to, to, uh, to punish criminals. And, and so it's not that it seems good to me. I think, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, that power uh, is used to maintain order in society. Sometimes it has to be used to subdue uh, evil, to subdue crime and, 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 and criminals and so forth. Um, so I, I, again, I, I think I think there's a good use of power, there's a moral use of power, and there's an immoral use of power. 
Okay. And I would so argue that me, all power me, comes from God. Let me try this question from another direction. What, how do you determine what is moral? I determine so, what is moral. I, I determine what is moral uh, based on God. God is the okay. moral reference that, point. So that's that's where it gets kind of circular. And so that's where so I was asking you why do you think power is good? Well, you know, because it's good when it's used morally. Okay, well what's moral? Yes. Well God is moral. God. Um, Absolutely. So how do we So God is the greatest because uh, possible being because God's God is is kind of where this because, goes. Because he is the greatest moral being as well. He's also but you, but he's but you only know that he's moral because he tells you he's moral. You, uh, you don't have no. a, you don't have a way to judge no, God's not morality independently. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, okay. I mean, we we we're all coming to the table here, obviously, with presuppositions. So, David, you have a presupposition. You have a worldview. I have a worldview, and I have a presupposition. So none of us are biased here. We're we're all neutral. Well, uh, no, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to say bias in some simplistic way. I'm saying mm. that when you are, when you are saying these mm -hmm. are great making properties, you right. are using what you think you know of God to say what is a great making property. And so what you're really saying is whatever I think God is is what a great making property is. So I think God is good, so that's a great making property. I think God is powerful, that's a great making mm -hmm. property. God is moral, mm -hmm. and so whatever God's morality is, that's a great making property. It becomes extremely right. circular. No, it does not at all. I mean, uh, again, when we get into the issue of morality, I mean, we, 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 will, we can enter into the area of the moral argument as well. Uh, we can talk about that. But I think that that you don't have to be a Christian to to come to the understanding that a maximally great being can also be a moral being, and and therefore I believe that the knowledge of God, the idea of God as a moral, a morally grounded being, I think is something that is not just revealed in in the Bible. I think that it is something that exists in every human heart. I think that the very concept of a maximally great being. Um, is something that uh, uh, even an atheist can can discuss and, well, and think about. Well, I, because I, I, here that, here I sit, and yeah. uh, I don't. I'm I'm not impressed with any models of maximally great being that I've ever heard. So, so I, what? So yeah. so if I can just make a sure. counter. Uh, so David, how would you define a maximally great being then in your definition? I don't think I would. So Why not? I don't. I don't. I don't have any reason to try to define a maximally great being. My my life is not uh, guided or shaped in any way by the idea of a maximally great being. I'm, okay. I'm happy but, with being uh, a good being in my own eyes that uh, fits well with the society uh, that I live in and uh, that I am more pro-social than not and I leave the world mm -hmm. in a better place than I found it. That's okay. sufficient for me. I do not need okay. to be maximally great. I do not need to uh, discover no, no. a maximally great being. I do not need to right. discover that that concept simply does not uh, have anything to do with how I think about living my life. Okay, I, I, well, so, I'm not Tony, come back, and then I, I have a, a question for you, Tony, on this mm -hmm. this one last question. So yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, I, I was just going to say. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out why, why David, you you don't want to answer that question. I mean, uh, a maximally great being. How would you define a maximally great being? 
I'm not asking how that fits into your lifestyle or your worldview of, of how you live your life, but how would you define a maximally great I don't know. I think it's, a, I think it's kind of a um, nonsensical concept to me. So I, I, I do think that's an interesting question. Dale and I have talked about this a yeah. lot off, off mic. I don't think there is a maximally great being. I think the idea of even thinking about a maximally great being um, is is a little silly. So I don't I don't know how I would define it. But however I just one second, however I would Sorry. define it though would be my it particular definition, and it would not mean that someone else would have to agree with that as a maximally great being. That would just be peculiar to me. And mm. so when you talk about a maximally great being and you talk about these attributes, all you're talking about are attributes that you find particularly interesting. I, I don't find them particularly interesting, and the being that you're des describing doesn't seem to be maximally or at all great to me. So mm. um, I, I don't see any objective way for you to suggest that these characteristics that you're naming are somehow maximally great. They just seem to be great by your own best lights. But wouldn't you agree, David, that a that if a maximum if a maximally great being existed, would that being not have to be all just or righteous? No, because Why? my because my idea of justice and righteousness comes from if the Christian story is true, a broken census uh, divinitatis. I. I have no idea what is right and just. And so it could be that my desire for what I think of as justice is really evil and out of step with what truly is just. And so once again, I am just creating, you're just asking me to create a maximally great being in my own image of what I think maximally great ought to be. You're not giving right. me an objective measure right. no, of what not, maximal not, greatness is. Yeah, well, but, no, no, not, not exactly in your image, but... But I, I don't. I just sense there's a reticence on your part, uh, David, to to want to enter the discussion of exactly. I will let, I will let Dale take over, but Dale, okay. I think Dale. I think Dale will yeah, attest to the fact there's no resident resonant. Uh, re, there's no hesitation on my part. You're uh, just okay. not understanding my answer. Mm. I am answering it directly. I don't mm. believe the concept of a maximally great being mm. is coherent. Well, it's, yeah, I think with so it, stepping into the moderator right, with with David, uh, just so you know, Tony. So he he denies the objectivity of any great making property. He would say that nothing is a great making property. We, we can't objectively say that this is a, a good making property. So that's right. that's yeah, that's where he's sort of coming from. Um, but there is one one property that's key to this argument. Um, so. It, in modal logic terms, where we say that a maximum great being ha exists necessarily as opposed to just possibly, or in Anselm's term, it has the property of existing in reality rather than existing in your mind. Um, did you guys, did you maybe want to, to just sort of discuss what, why is it greater to exist in reality or to exist necessarily rather than just contingently? If you know, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that I think that. Um baked into the idea of God is, is, is the concept of necessity. Uh, that is to say that God um, exists as a necessary being, and a necessary being, of course, does not, is not dependent on anything for its existence. So something like uh, other minds or, or, or numbers, for example, uh, that are considered to be necessary entities uh, by, by a number of philosophers as well. Um, I would say that uh, if God exists uh, necessarily, 
that I think where, where, where Anselm is heading is that if God exists necessarily, and he is the greatest conceivable being, then um, the very idea of God, if we can conceive of, of a being who is uh, the greatest conceivable being, and he only exists in the mind, um, well, I can, I can think of an of a, of a even greater being, a being that actually exists in reality, because to exist in reality, uh, according to Anselm's argument, is greater than than a being that just exists in the mind alone. Okay, but uh, why? And 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 I think that's where I think that's also where um, Plantinga in, in in his argument uh, goes on to point that if a maximally great being exists in in, in the possible world in possible worlds, uh, then then he would have to exist in every possible world. Okay, but, and, but and, why is existence greater? Than not existence. I mean, I I'm not being well, an obscurantist here. Not at all, it, not at all. It, it sounds intuitive, uh, but you know, I could also say that being material is greater than being immaterial, uh, and yet you would not agree with that because your God is uh, not described as material. So, right. um, being immaterial to me would be almost like non-existence. So again, I, I see you stating a preference for existence. There are a lot of people who exist, for instance, who wish they didn't exist. And so existence mm-hmm. is not always a great making property. Uh, there right. are people who uh, exist in a person's mind as a heroic figure. And then when they meet the person, it's always less than uh, the hero that they uh, perceived in the mind. There are many examples where existence kind of ruins um, a thing rather than enhances a thing. It's kind of like a movie ruining a good tra- a good trailer. Um, right. So I, you know, I would I would suggest that whereas it may seem intuitive that existence is better than non-existence, spoken by you, someone who exists. Um, I, I think I can make a pretty good case that that's not always true. And so why objectively is that a great making property? Yeah, well, I think I pers- I think that uh, existence, it's better to be than, than not to be. That's the big question that Hamlet asks, to be or not to be. I, that was, is the I question. respect that. Yeah, I, I like that, too, yeah. because I'm here and I yeah. want to go on being here. I'm yeah. still trying yeah. to figure out why that's a great making property, because some of the most well, some of the most influential people in my life are people that did not exist. Mm. Mm. So let, yeah, let Tony give a full, full answer there. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that to be is better, obviously, than, than, than not to be. I think that uh, for something to exist uh, is greater than not to have existed at all. Uh, I mean, the same question can be asked about even, even the existence of the universe. Why does anything exist rather than nothing at all? And, and so I, I see existence um, as, a, as a great making property. I mean, Kant uh, rejected that idea. But uh, I think that the, the, the Mona Lisa existing in the mind of Leonardo da Vinci is one thing, but when Leonardo da Vinci put that image into, uh, onto a canvas, uh, it, it's much greater that the Mona Lisa exists in reality than, than just in the mind of, of Leonardo da Vinci. Um, so I, I don't see it that way, David. I, 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 I know there are people who, 
who would rather not exist than exist at all. But then again, we're dealing with cases of mental illness, people who are suffering okay, severe depression. But I'm, I'm not and asking so you to agree with me. I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm just asking you to see that there is another perspective. Non-existence can also be a good thing. I'm just asking you why I yeah. should accept your version that existence is better the non-existence both well, because, I, what, uh, yeah, we can both yeah. make cases that each yeah. is good right well, but we well, can't make an objective case yeah. we could just make an emotional case wouldn't you rather be here yeah. than not be here great well if that's yeah. what you're resting your god on ontological well, no, argument is no, not I very think, stable <laughs> well i i think it, and again it comes back to world views uh, it comes back to world views um um you don't believe there's an objective thing called the maximum great being i, I believe there is and i think that in 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 the in my theistic worldview, I think that existence is a gift from God, and I think that existence is also. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that I exist because I've come to know my wife. I've come to love my wife. I've I've come to know what it's like to have children, to be a father. Uh, I've come to know what it's like to uh, be engaging on this podcast with you two gentlemen. Uh, then rather not. If I didn't exist, I wouldn't have this opportunity to be talking to you guys right now. And so the, the way I look at it is, is that existence, being uh, being in existence, I think is wonderful. It's 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 an opportunity to 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 experience love. It's an ex, it's an opportunity to experience friendship, to experience the wonders of this world, uh, and so forth. And I think that me not me not having existed, uh, I think would be would be less than. Uh, than than my having existed and and experiencing all, all of these things, um, so I see existence as as a gift. I see existence as a wonderful uh, opportunity to to share life with others and and to experience God's love as well. And that's an interesting note, uh, David, that you might not know, but in, in the class Tony was teaching us, it, it's actually a misnomer to say that God exists. Uh, right, right. Yeah. right, right, because. <laughs> Because the well, whole idea of, of <laughs> <laughs> sorry, the word, yeah, the word exists. Dari means to to stand without it. It, it has the idea of contingency, and and so uh, and so um, the 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 proper the proper language is that is that God is, and 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 of course this this is predicated on 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 God's name in the Bible, the I am, the one who is. Sure. Uh, who does not who does not depend on anything? Well, what for what you said just a minute ago I, yeah. still rings in my ear. You say that existence is a gift of God, and that's why it's good. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that really speaks to the circularity of this type of argument. Of course, you think existence is the better thing because you think it's a gift of God. So it it still kind of circles back around to that. It's not an independent measure of why existence is necessarily better. I mean, Hitler's Hitler existed. I think the world would have been better if he hadn't existed. Mm. Some, some, you know, the evil exists as Christians would speak of moral evils. I think that it mm. would be better as a concept than as a real thing. Mm. Uh, existence is not always good, and yet you determine that it is better for a maximally great being, whereas I would say in my life I have been more positively affected by beings that never existed, that have only existed in fiction, than beings mm -hmm. that have existed in real life. And so mm -hmm. I think from my own personal story, I could make a case that non-existence has benefited me more. 
so, you know, once again, it's not, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I am simply asking you to objectify this stance that existence must be the better thing. And again, there's right. no way to objectify that. You're just saying it seems better to you. Great. Well, well, I, I, I mean, if I objectify it, obviously, I, I mean, if we speak of objectivity, I, I, again, um, I'm assuming that your view of, 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 um, truth in life is, is subjective in its approach, um, or, or, or I, that's why I guess you're the skeptic. Um, but the moment we speak to, of objectivity, I, I, I do believe that existence is, is objective. I think it's that our existence is, is not a mistake. I think, I think that existence, as I pointed out, is again, uh, all our views are filtered through our worldviews. And I believe that existence as a gift from God, even the existence of evil entities, I think that they even serve a purpose. I think that as horrible as it was for Hitler's existence, we, we were able to see uh, the the degree of human uh, depravity and human wickedness and, and and what we as human beings can do to another. Yeah, I don't. Know, um, I don't think we ever actually had to see that. So I mean, I, I well, get, I well get we that, have right, but I get that your worldview uh, means that you've got to make kind of justifications for that. But I don't think that makes a very strong case for existence being good. It just makes a strong case for why you need it to be good. Okay, so so I'll give Tony the last that last word, but I want to move on to the parodies section because that's a major objection that that skeptics give to the ontological argument. So, so yeah, Tony, so, you'll get. So the last I don't one. actually do a lot of objecting in the parodies department, but <laughs> many skeptics skeptics sure. do. But... I just I just want to I just want to let it be known. So I may not actually have much to say here. I don't I don't think too much of the parodies. Okay, uh, so. So yeah, if Tony, do you have anything to to give a last word on what David just said, or do you want to move on to the parody section? Um, and I, I would I would just say that uh, that on average, uh, I think most people would agree that uh, that to exist is better than to not exist. And I think as well that uh, when we deal with issues of people who would rather not exist, uh, these are usually issues dealing with mental illness and, 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 and depression and anxiety where people uh, want to end their lives. But overall, um, people want to live. That's that's why our hospitals are full and, and that's why pharmaceuticals are making such a such a huge business in the selling of drugs to to uh, to uh, keep disease at control and to prolong our lives and, and so forth. So I think there's a, an innate desire in, 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 in every healthy human being to to want to live. And uh, David mentioned uh, uh, some of the greatest people who, who, who are as great exemplars are fictional characters that, that never existed. Um, and of course, they, they didn't ontologically exist, um, but they existed in his mind. And, and so these these figures, whether they're Superman or, or Spider-Man, whoever it may be, uh, these figures, uh, nevertheless, were, were were reference points for, for David to, 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 to uh, be encouraged or to to be uh, challenged or, or, or to, to be um, examples of, of, of what a hero should be like and so forth. And so, I have no problem with a God that exists in your mind. So, okay. But the, uh, but the ontological so, argument tries to take him out of that. So, so, so you granted Anselm's <laughs> argument, though, that you do understand, you can conceive of a God who exists in the mind. I actually don't <laughs> grant Anselm's argument. So okay, I, I, I think that the fact that I can mention a blue unicorn elephant and put that thought in your mind does not in any way make it exist. 
I, I think uh, that's well, so well, childlike and silly a, a formula. I just that, but, but dying to but say whole, that, but no. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. But we're talking about God, not not a unicorn here. Okay, well, I don't care whether you're talking about God. I've just put that. I've just put that hey, but, blue unicorn elephant in your mind. It exists. Yeah, well, my whole point. Yeah, my, <laughs> and my you can't make it not exist. Okay, my whole point was when you said it exists in your mind. Okay, that's what I'm saying there is that that's what Anselm was getting at, is that the fool who says there is no God at least has the idea of God in his mind. Right. That's my point. I, I, think, I think that's a silly formulation. I don't, I don't even okay. think, I don't even, wouldn't even use academic terms to describe it. I think it's... Well, they're, yeah, a, they're a, still a, using it a thousand years later. A thousand years later, people yeah. still believe in dragons. It's, this yeah. is a silly uh, formulation. Yeah. Come on. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> <Okay>. moto dragons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's. Okay, there's there's a strand here. So, okay, great. David has this concept of God in his mind, um, but then how do we get it out into act into the actual world? And the ontological argument provides premises to do that. But there are parodies, right? So mm-hmm. can't we do the same with a greatest to start off a, a greatest conceivable pizza. island pizza? Oh, sorry. Uh, Greatest conceivable pizza. Okay. I like pizza as well. Um, or a necessarily existent dragon. Right. Uh, yeah, for, let's start with those. Like, why, why can't we just d- get those existing by substituting instead of a maximal great being, we have the greatest conceivable pizza or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I it's think. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you guys, you guys getting objection. pizza? Are you guys getting pizza? No, I, I, no. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to pre-agree with you uh, here, Tony. This, these are trivial examples, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would just say, <laughs> I would just say with uh, with, the, with the pizza argument that uh, I would say that uh, that the pizza ca- uh, cannot be a gr- the greatest conceivable being or the a maximally great being because a, a pizza uh, can always be improved upon, right? You can always add a couple more uh, pepperonis. Uh, you could add. Uh, a couple more mushrooms. No, you can't. Uh, no. So here I am. I'm going to defend this stupid parody now. <laughs> no, a maximally great pizza is one in which you cannot imagine any improvements upon. It it doesn't matter. Uh, but I can. You, but but well, I can imagine a greater God. I, trust me, it would be a then God. That's God. It would. It, that would be God. It would be then a God that saves that one God. more person than the one the actual God saves. So that you know, until until we get to until we get to universalism, I don't think that uh, I don't think David, that we do. <laughs> David, the moment you said I can think of a of a greater God, that's a that is Anselm's point precisely. Right. You can I, think of I think Anselm. I think that Anselm's uh, uh, formulation was childlike. But yes, I, I will I will gladly play the child to say that if you're talking about imagining, you're saying, well, you can't imagine a greatest possible pizza because there's always room for one more pepperoni. Well, I, there's I, I, always room in the world for one more good deed. We can always imagine oh, a, a slightly yeah. better world than the one we're in, and that means yeah. that a slightly better God may be could have done it that's that's a categorical fallacy though we're, t- we're not talking about deeds and ethics in the world we're talking about a being and, and so when we talk about pizza the greatest conceivable pizza the only problem is uh, pizzas can be consumed they no longer exist after they're eaten i'm actually oh, great no, being i'm not saying that it, i'm not the one saying existence is necessary though you are yeah, so yeah, <laughs> maximally, yeah maximally great being would necessarily 
have to be self-existent and and eternal. So, well, I mean, uh, unfortunately, pizzas are you, not eternal. Let, let right, but if, if we're doing if we're doing the pizza though, you can't say you can just add one more pepperoni, but you can't yeah. then say, well, I can say we can have one less evil act in the world. It's the same type of thing. Yeah, we're talking about a maximum great being, not about ethics. So yeah, let, me, let me finish my thought on that. I mean, in the case of pizzas, yeah, of course you can always add a couple more pepperonis, of course. But at the end of the day, a pizza is is consumed. There's nothing left after it's eaten. Uh, I think that's a poor analogy to to the maximum grade being. And I also think gotcha. even with Gondolo's Island, I mean, even with the concept of a greatest uh, conceivable island, I mean, yeah, you can always add a couple more palm trees, a couple more uh, hula, hula hoop girls in, in there and, and everything. You can have more pina coladas. Um, but again, the, uh, uh, the maximally great being, uh, an island is not a maximally great being. It, it's a, it's a landmass. Uh, and, and, and I think that it does not fully define, uh, what, what plan to go or even Anselm was getting at when they spoke about a maximally great being. Okay, so so Tony, here's here's one that I'm interested in. So th- this this example comes from me, and it it's relates to Stephen Law's evil yeah. god challenge. Um, so okay, let let's. I hear what you're saying. There's a maximal great being, and the ontological argument proves that that being actually exists. But what if I substitute a maximal evil being? So he he's got all the evil properties to the maximal degree. It would, since it would be more evil for such a being to actually exist rather than find or, or just possibly exist, would, couldn't the ontological argument be used to prove a maximal evil being? No, I don't think so. Because again, uh, maximal greatness. I don't think evil is uh, is a property of maximal greatness. I think that uh, a being that is all good is is a, is is a maximally greater being than a being that is. Uh, old evil. Uh, and so um, a figure like Satan in the Bible or, or even Loki in, in Marvel Comics, the, the, the brother of Thor and so forth, I think omnibenevolence is, is a, a greater making property. Yeah, but you keep saying you than, think you think omni. Well, I, I'm just I'm just I mean, I, OK, let, let's put it this way. Uh, it seems to me that's what I hear philosophers always say. Right. It seems to me. Right. I'm just, I'm just saying, me, I think is the well, beginning well, of special well, pleading, well, right? I mean, you well, think no, I to don't you. think it's special pleading. I mean, I mean, we've all we've all been we all use this type of language. All, all I'm arguing is that omnibenevolence, I think, or I argue or I believe I believe that omnibenevolence is a greater making property than omni uh, malevolence. OK, being I know. All evil. I mean, I look, I don't I, I don't actually have a dog in this fight, but I can just say, OK, I don't. And you can't you can't really reject that. You can just say you do. Well, I don't. Uh, we don't we don't have a way of uh, of really negotiating that uh, because we're just creating our own fantasy gods here. Well, I think it's better to be all good than, than I, all I get that you think it's better. David, so you've got David, a God David, that. Uh-huh. David, it's okay. we've, we've covered this topic, right? Like what what is it that makes a great making property? I, I get that you're a. A total you claim to be a total subjectivist but in in my dealings i remember when when we discussed that you believed it was greater that someone be cured of cancer so that's a, a great making property if, but still I, yeah I'm, I'm a moderator so okay with with the maximal evil being though david what 
do do you have any thoughts on Tony's response to this? Like yeah, it's it, just special pleading. I don't see any difference between a being that's maximally evil and a being that's maximally good from a universal perspective. I can just say I think I would like one better than the other. But as far as which has the greatest great making property, um, there's no way to determine that. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and Tony, are you anything yeah. else to say? Well, on that? Well, well, David just said, I think, and I don't see it. So you see, we're using <laughs> the same language, David. Right. So, but I'm not, I'm not the one making uh, positive claims about what absolutely a great making being is, because I think the concept is incoherent. Well, but, I, so, I would, I would say, I would say, I would say that an all good, an all good or an omnibenevolent being is, is much greater than an all malevolent being. I don't know anyone. Uh, I mean, maybe you're the first, David. Okay, but all you're but saying I, is it's more desirable, right? That's more desirable. Not only is it more desirable. You. It's 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 morally it's better to be good uh, than evil. To be morally good. I mean, it's it's better to provide for your children than to abuse your children. Let, let, let me ask you this. Uh, let me ask you. Let me ask. Hold on. We have a, we've had precious little interaction this way. Let me ask you. There is. There is one thing that I think is being being misunderstood that I, I want to because I think the objection, the maximal evil being, it, it, it we're not asking it, it what is greater because the the maximal evil being that looks at what is the evilest properties and it's more evil. So it's like a counter defeater argument. So it, it, it doesn't work to say like oh well it's it's greater to be good than evil. I I agree a hundred percent. But in the maximal evil being. Uh, ontological argument we're not looking at what are greater making properties we're looking at what are eviler so to speak making properties well, in, in, in the question the question that I was going to ask that might that might uh, address that and just expose what I think is special pleading is if you imagine both the maximally good being and the maximally evil being and you and you put them uh, to a contest who wins and and the answer to that is neither. They would they would have to, I think, philosophically, battle to a draw, because they are uh, the same thing. They are maximally uh, both what they are, and uh, they are opposite of what they are. So they would cancel each other out. And if you would say, well, no, the maximally good being would win, I think that's just special pleading on your part because you've you've you have a preference, and I am okay with that preference. But you're not really tracking with the philosophical argument by stating your preference. So yeah, so so Tony, responding to that, like, is it true that they cancel each other out? So, and full disclosure, I I agree 100 percent with with Tony. I I don't think the maximal evil being objection works. It's not a tie, but what the what the question for the skeptic here is it, how do we break that tie like do, doesn't a maximal evil being cancel out um or do we have a, a reason to privilege that a max great being is possible but a max evil being is impossible does that make sense well, yeah yeah i think it all it all depends again by by how we define maximally great being okay. um, and and i still think i still think as well that um the the idea of 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 a maximally good being um, would be um, um, greater in terms of uh, in, in terms of their being um, than than a, a maximally evil being. I mean, 
I think it's it's pretty obvious. I, yeah. I don't know why we've been having this discussion, but I know that it, it's pretty obvious that um, we prefer goodness. We prefer um, yeah. goodness to to triumph over evil. I mean, the whole concept of the the first and second world wars and and the concept of of remembering the fallen dead and so forth was that freedom that would prevail and and that there was there was this this idea that that men and women gave their lives so it was good and what was right um i don't know anyone i've not met anyone who would prefer uh, mm-hmm. a a maximally evil being over a, a maximally good being so um i i just don't understand how this could be a, a stalemate uh, at all so i i'm just having yeah. difficulty understanding david david's perfect um okay so yeah, I think I think we've covered all the major sections. It is um, Tony? Is there anything that you think we've missed or that we should discuss that that's important with the ontological? No, I, no, I think we've we've I think we've addressed a good chunk of of, of information here. Um, cool. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm very thankful for uh, for for having this opportunity to talk to you fellows. Excellent. Yeah. Thank Thank you so much for for coming on, David. If do you have something? I do. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever known me not to? It's a, uh, unfortunately, no. <laughs> well, I have this show. Of course I have something to say. I know. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, I find the ontological argument to be bewildering. I don't know why it has hung around so long, and I do understand why um, Plantigo, one of his champions, has abandoned it. Uh, so, I, I do think that uh, it is highly emotional and highly subjective. And so while I am the one painted as the subjection, subjectivist, which I suppose I am for most things, um, the ontological argument is about as subjective as you get. Um, it, it is the greatest possible being because you say so, because you have these properties in your mind that are emotionally appealing to you. And so that must be God. So those are great making properties. And the Bible uh, hints at a few properties. And so those must be great making properties. And so whatever whatever makes you feel better, why would anyone want uh, evil to win as opposed to good? So good must be better. Um, this is This is a very emotional argument and I get it. I have the same types of emotions. I just don't build gods around them. And so as an argument to define a god into existence, I think this one's very weak. You can use any emotional framework to define the same god into existence. Uh, We don't need the ontological argument for the things that Tony uh, proposes, such as a triune god. Ontological argument is completely unnecessary. Just claim the god is triune and be done with it. Um, God is good. We don't need the ontological argument to prove that. Just say that you think that whatever God does is good. We're done. And so at the end of the day, um, I, I'm fine that Christians have, you know, a, a belief in a God they think, they think is pretty good. But I don't think the ontological argument, as we've demonstrated today, in any way uh, upholds any of the main uh, principles or ideas of that. It is really subjective and based on what uh, the holder in their mind thinks of as good or great or maximal. I think ultimately the idea of a maximal being is incoherent. 
Uh, and that's that's my view. Cool. All right, uh, Tony, you can have the last word as your closing statement, if you like. Sure. sure. Um, well, so first of all, thank you, Dale. Thank you, David, for this uh, opportunity. I really appreciate your uh, uh, your friendship here in, in, in discussing these issues. Um, the ontological argument um, given almost a thousand years ago by St. Anselm of Canterbury in his Proslogion simply will not go away. It, it has remained um, for centuries. It has bewildered many scholars and great thinkers, people like Baruch Spinoza, René Descartes, um, uh, Immanuel Kant, and, and others. It's, it's not, in my opinion, a, a weak argument at all. Um, these great thinkers, I don't think many of us would judge them to be um, uh, less than, than great thinkers that we've afforded them in the history of philosophy and, and in theology. And um, I would also say that uh, the ontological argument is, is an a priori argument. Uh, it is it is demonstrated to to show that the idea of God. It's not necessarily uh, Anselm trying to say therefore God exists. He's trying to argue that if we grant that the idea of a great conceivable being, or later as Plantinga would say, the the um, a maximally great being, that the very idea uh, can exist in the mind and in fact does. And if that idea exists in the mind, and you define God as the greatest conceivable being then a greatest conceivable being would have to exist not just in the mind, but also in reality. Um, and I know many atheists that I've engaged with who are willing to grant the argument that a maximally great being would have to be a being who is morally perfect, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, um, and that this being would have to, would, would cannot have any uh, imperfections at all. Uh, and so the ontological argument, as I see it, is not the one and only argument, but that it is an argument in a series of other arguments that Christians have used throughout history to argue for God's existence. Now, being a theist, uh, we all come to the table with our presuppositions and worldviews, and as a theist, I see that God has revealed himself, uh, even outside of the Bible, God reveals himself in the moral conscience of every human being, so that the very idea of God, I believe, is there. It is in the human conscience. The Bible says we either listen to that conscience or we suppress that uh, conscience in our unrighteousness. Um, and so I think that the, Ans the Anselmian argument uh, for uh, the ontological existence of God um, it's not altogether perfect, because when it was originally given, it was given in a, in a book on, on prayer and meditation, Poslogion. But I think that its argumentation, if we really take it seriously, I think that it, it will show that it does have uh, convic convincing power. Um, and I also think that the idea of God's uh, omnibenevolence, that, that it is better to be all good than to be all evil, I think that... Um, most folks uh, would would understand that it's better to be good than to be evil, um, even on a finite scale. But on a maximal scale, if, if God is a morally perfect being, then God would have to be good and not uh, an evil tyrant. Thank you so much. Perfect. All right. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much again, Tony, for, for coming on and discussing My this. Pleasure.
My yeah. pleasure, guys. Excellent. Hopefully good to, that. Uh, good to have you, Tony. Uh, Dale, Thank tell you, him, David. Tell them what's next, Dale. Uh, so next week we'll be uh, we'll be doing a show just between me and David debating okay. the uh, Trinity. Uh, so the the is is the Old Testament consistent with the doctrines of the Trinity in the no. Uh, well, I will be arguing yes. So I'll just I guess I guess it'll take a little bit longer than the two seconds it just took there. But honestly, <laughs> no. There you go, folks. There you go. <laughs> Well, well, we'll see. <laughs> uh, I've been well trained by Tony, so. <laughs> All right. All right. So, so everyone have a good week. I hope you enjoyed okay. the show. And yeah, take care. You guys. Okay, Dale, we'll see you shortly, I guess, next week in the class. Next week, Sunday. Yep. Next okay. Sunday, yeah. Okay. Right. Thanks, David. Have a Bye, good everybody. Day.